ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It's the question that's on everyone's mind. How do you live a good life? How much do work, health, relationships matter? What about happiness, meaning, money, and love? What if you're alone or anxious, ill or in pain? These are the questions we explore weekly on the top-ranked Good Life Project podcast, hosted by me, award-winning author, four-time industry founder, and perpetual seeker, Jonathan Fields. Every week, I sit down with world-renowned experts, iconic writers, and researchers, and while everyone from Olympic gold medalists to world-shaking activists, A-list celebs, musicians, and more, all with a single goal, to help understand what it truly takes to live a good life and to feel a little less alone along the way. Listen to the Good Life Project podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Hello, listeners. I'm Amy McKinnon, national security reporter at Foreign Policy, and this is Foreign Policy Playlist. Each week, we help you make sense of the crazy number of podcasts out there by recommending one podcast from somewhere around the world. This week, we're doing things a little bit differently. Instead of featuring a full podcast episode and a brief interview with the host, we're turning things on their head. In just a bit, you're going to hear my extended interview with Katrin Benhold, the New York Times Berlin bureau chief and host of their incredible new series, Day X, about far-right infiltration in the German military. And before we get started, just a reminder that at the end of today's episode, we have the last of our four-part series sponsored by the African Development Bank on how building human capacity through education, health and nutrition is essential to the content's recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. And now here is a little teaser from the New York Times series, Day X, Part 1, Shadow Army. One day, in January 2017, a maintenance guy was doing his daily round at the Vienna airport. He walks into a single-person bathroom. I think this is it. And opens a small door on the back wall to access some pipes. Wow. And inside... That's where they found the gun. There's an old black pistol and it's loaded. So he takes the gun to the police, and the police set a trap to see who comes to get it. About two weeks later, someone does. The man they arrest identifies himself as an officer in the German military. And after hours of questioning, They let him go. When they run his fingerprints for a routine check, they come up with a match. But these fingerprints are not registered to a military officer. They're registered to a Syrian refugee. This sets off alarm bells and an investigation that eventually spans three countries and multiple intelligence agencies. And what they find is that in 2015, 
as hundreds of thousands of refugees were arriving in Germany. This German military officer disguised himself and managed to fool the authorities into believing he was one of those refugees. For over a year, he had been living a double life. The question was, why? That was the opening of Day X, Shadow Army, from the New York Times. Listen to the rest of the series on your favorite podcast app. And here now is my conversation with the Times Bureau Chief and host of Day X, Katrin Benhold. I love the podcast. We drove to New York this weekend and it's a four-hour journey and my husband and I just binged it wall to wall. It was incredible. Ah, well, thank you. That's so kind. How long did it take you to make? It's a difficult question to answer because, of course, it's kind of taking a lot of the reporting that I'd done before for print and then uh, adapting it for audio. So my reporter's journey on this really started two years ago, but that was really for print. Except that we started talking to Franco A. at the time. I introduced him to the Daily Producers. We kind of did this other podcast, a series for the Daily called The Battle for Europe. It was kind mm-hmm. of about the rise of populism in various European countries ahead of the European elections a couple of years ago. And we actually met him in Strasbourg near his old military base. I had made contact with him before and met him off the record. And we were sort of kind of just negotiating with him, like what might be possible. And that's where the idea was born to maybe make a podcast about his case. So we were recording the interviews with him over a period of over a year. And then at the same time, I was reporting out stuff for my print series. And initially, the audio people thought that we would keep it neatly focused on Frankel. But once I'd finished my print series, suddenly people were like, well, this is kind of bigger than one person. And so we had to (laughs) re-report a lot of the stuff (laughs) with a microphone that I'd already recorded with a notebook beforehand. And I had some recording, but you know how it is. If you're a print recorder, you record something. It's kind of bad quality because you do it either on audio note or on your phone, and it's not quite the same. So yeah, it, it took a long time. The actual making of this podcast, I would say, Apart from the raw stuff we had from Franco, I mean, really, we started in in kind of January, February. It wasn't a huge amount of time in the end, and it was a pretty mad Hmm. rush, you know, in the last few weeks. So the podcast is called Day X. Tell me, what is Day X? What is it all about? So Day X is this mythical concept that has kind of animated the far right in Germany and other German-speaking countries like Austria for decades. It's basically the day that far-right extremists anticipate the democratic order will collapse. It's a day of crisis, Mm -hmm. of national crisis. You know, they say that a lot of things could trigger day X. It could be a natural disaster. It could be a mega blackout. It could be a terrorist attack. It could be a pandemic. And it would be a day where the state loses control, where the social order collapses, and where these far-right forces take over and, in their telling, save the nation. What intelligence officials worry about is that the line between waiting for this moment and actually precipitating it is increasingly blurred and that day X is almost like a call to action. It's sort of a narrative that that sanctifies violence. It's sort of like, you know, this is about you. You can save the nation. And so this is where people like Franco A., this military officer in Germany who's currently standing trial on charges of plotting terrorism, comes in because... He was part of this network of police officers and soldiers and citizens who kind of were like-minded. 
and they were prepping for the acts. But then if prosecutors are right, Franco A was actually preparing an attack that was meant to bring down the social order. So in other words, trigger the acts. So the series begins with this incredible scene about a gun which is found in an airport bathroom. So from that initial discovery, what does that lead to? So perhaps the most incredible thing about that gun in an airport bathroom in Vienna is that it was discovered by chance. That to me really was always what got me because had it not been for this maintenance guy who was making his daily round and who found this sort of vintage pistol that was loaded in this sort of cubby hole in the wall of a, of a single stall bathroom, who knows what would have happened, right? Because Franco A, the guy, this officer who'd hid it there, you know, even though he should have been on the radar, he wasn't. What happened once they found this gun is they basically set a trap to see who would come and get this gun. They wanted to see who had hidden it there. And uh, about 10 days later, this alarm went off and a bunch of you know police officers at the Vienna airport ran to this bathroom, knocked on the door, and they found this German military officer inside, Franco A. They interrogated him for several hours. He had a sort of story to tell them, explaining that he'd wanted to hand in this gun, that he'd found it by chance a couple of weeks earlier. It was a pretty implausible story. Incredibly enough, they let him go. But they did run his fingerprints. And when the match came back, they realized that these fingerprints were not registered to a German military officer. They were registered to a Syrian refugee. And that was the moment when people sort of started feeling really alarmed about this because they realized that this guy had lived a double life for over a year, that this military officer had pretended to be a Syrian refugee, had dressed up, put shoe polish in his beard and makeup on his face, and literally shown up at a German police station, speaking in broken English, saying that he'd come from Aleppo, lost his papers along the way, and got away with it. So that's sort of this, this incredible, spectacular tale of Franco A., who is now standing trial. So when I, you know, I always think of Germany as being extremely vigilant about far-right sentiment, particularly because of, of its history. But how did no one notice what Franco A. was doing? How did this go unnoticed until a maintenance guy happened upon a gun in a bathroom? It's really the big story of our time in Germany right now, because it is a paradox. It seems paradoxical. This is the country that in some ways has come full circle. It's the country that, perhaps like no other in the world, has sort of atoned for its history, is teaching its history in forensic detail and with really brutal honesty in, in, in schools. It has a sort of culture of remembrance that is very impressive. And, you know, it is the country, of course, that, that welcomed over a million refugees in 2015 and 16, when many other countries didn't. So in some ways, it's a story of redemption. And that Germany is real, for sure. But it is interesting that whilst we spend a lot of time atoning for the past, we've been pretty blind in this country towards far-right extremism and far-right terrorism in the post-war decades. And there's a history of this. Franco A is really just the latest of many incidents. I mean, the best explanation I've heard was actually from the mayor of Cologne, a woman who herself was stabbed by a far-right extremist in her throat, was in a coma, almost died. This was after 2015, and her city was very welcoming to refugees. 
And when I asked her just exactly this question that you just asked me, I mean, she said, what mustn't be cannot be. It's almost the sense of we have worked so hard at this. We've atoned. We're taking an honest look at our history. This is not who we are anymore. This can't be. We don't have these Nazis anymore. And so it's almost like this complacency comes from a place almost of of turning away from something that you just can't bear to see. I thought this was possibly a good explanation. There's obviously a problem of complicity at some level. And you will have heard episode three, where we talk about the case of a terror group, a far-right terror group, the National Socialist Underground, who murdered immigrants for seven years and were never discovered because the police and the intelligence services not only looked the other way and sort of searched for, for perpetrators within the immigrant community, but actually, in some cases, seemed to have far-right sympathies themselves. So I don't want to play down the danger of complicity within the institutions with some of these far-right extremists. But I think the broader issue is just possibly an unwillingness to see the problem. I do see a change, though, in Germany now. And I really saw that shift over the two years that I've done this reporting, where the tone changed within the institutions that I was questioning on this issue. I think that there is a realization now that we have a serious problem on our hands and people are beginning to deal with it. What brought about that realization? I think it was partly an accumulation of cases. There was a sort of sense of, you know, we we can't turn a blind eye anymore. There's just too much of this coming. I mean, there was a time where you just had too many of these cases surfacing. I mean, Franco A was just the latest. It's just every few months there would be another story, which, you know, reached a point where it became very embarrassing. I think there are three terrorist attacks that happened over the last two years in Germany that really did shake the country. The first one was possibly the most important one. A regional politician from Angela Merkel's party was assassinated on his front porch by a well-known neo-Nazi, somebody who had fantasized about killing and should have been on the radar and wasn't. So that the murder of Walter Lübcke really was a moment where Germans realized, you know, we have a problem. Then we had a synagogue attack a few months after that. And of course, about a year ago, nine immigrants were shot in the city of Hanau. So I think the accumulation of these terrorist attacks prompted the chief of the intelligence agency in Germany to actually state for the first time publicly in March 2020 that far-right extremism and far-right terrorism is now the greatest threat to democracy, which felt like a watershed moment. We'll be right back after this break. Is China a trusted partner, or should Canada and its allies stand on guard? From Global News, I'm Jeff Semple, and on my new podcast, China Rising, we'll hear explosive stories from accused spies, whistleblowers in Wuhan, and investigate how China is quietly infiltrating the upper echelons of power in Western countries, including Canada. Listen to China Rising for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. With experts predicting the ransomware problem will intensify before it gets better, journalists at the Financial Times have been investigating this concerning trend. The Financial Times offers unrivaled global and regional coverage on cybersecurity. Its journalists offer in-depth analysis, opinion, and the insights you need to inform your decisions. Use the FT to explore key technology topics from a finance and business angle to help you plan your cybersecurity strategy. To read more, visit ft.com newagenda. 
Looking for a thoughtful podcast that helps you understand the world? We recommend G-Zero World, where Ian Bremmer goes in-depth with thought leaders and policymakers weekly. From Christine Lagarde to Adam Grant, guests bring global insights you won't want to miss. Subscribe to G-Zero World with Ian Bremmer, wherever you get your podcasts, or listen at gzeromedia.com. My name's Kurt Jaimungo, and this is the Theories of Everything podcast. The show where we bring rigor to mathematics, physics, and consciousness. Exploring grand unified theories, as well as free will and God. Even exploring aliens with former CIA Lou Elizondo. Heated debates on metaphysics with Kastrup and Verveke. Imagine you are an organism that spans a galaxy. How does the universe look to you? Type in Theories of Everything on YouTube, Spotify, iTunes, all platforms. Um. You mentioned, in terms of the threat that they represent, you mentioned some parallels with 1920s Germany, and I'm wondering if you can just unpack that a little bit for our listeners. It's hard sometimes to draw these historic analogies, because of course the 20s, you know, 100 years ago are not the 20s today, but it's also hard not to see some similarities. The 1920s was a time when, after the, the defeat in World War I, there were a lot of disgruntled soldiers, many of whom were disbanded because the army in Germany was reduced to a size of 100,000. And so some of these soldiers would band together in these paramilitary groups that, that had far-right leanings and killed politicians. They kind of plotted coups. I mean, there were attempted coups in the 20s and, and several politicians got killed and political figures. So it was a time that saw a lot of violent terrorist action, really, by these far-right military groups, paramilitary groups, and it destabilized this very young democracy. And that's where the analogy sort of falters a little bit, because, of course, the democracy that we have today, which uh, is stronger institutionally and has been on purpose designed in a way that is that makes it stronger after World War II and has also survived for many, many decades, you can't compare that, that sort of resilience of our democracy today to the resilience of, of the Weimar Republic, which was, was still weak. It was also a very militaristic culture still at the time. It was very common to see weapons in public and so on. So it was a different time. The sort of shadow army in the 1920s is something that you do think about when you look at so many soldiers and police officers getting lured by this far-right ideology, as we're seeing today. So this sort of parallel of of a shadow army combined with far-right populism that is, you know, gaining momentum, not just on the streets, but inside parliament. That is an analogy that feels important. We certainly need to be vigilant. I thought what was interesting about that comparison was it's kind of about like the war of attrition on democracy, that the rise of the far right isn't something that happens, certainly not overnight or not even over two or three years, that it's this kind of, it's a long, slow process. There's not this one kind of singular moment, which I found kind of disturbing sitting here in the US where we're also grappling with these with these issues of, you know, far right sentiments amongst members of the military and police forces. I think you're absolutely right. I think that's very true. And, you know, people have written about, you know, how democracies die. And that's exactly what you see in places like Venezuela and where democracy once thrived and is now dead. It is a process. It takes years. It takes disinformation. It takes an erosion of trust in public institutions. 
which is where terrorism comes in, in some ways, because it creates insecurity, which is where it's important who sits in our parliaments and what they say, how taboos are broken, language shifts, and perhaps gives license to those who want to commit violence. This, in fact, is, is another sort of cautionary tale from 100 years ago, because, of course, the Nazis didn't reach power in a coup. They were elected in democratic elections, and they only abolished democracy afterwards. So it's, in a way, a very successful tale of infiltration. And that's something that we do need to think about, too, because as one of the officials are interviewed in episode five points out, not everybody who is elected in a democracy is a Democrat. And it's a weak point of democracy in a way, because the enemies of democracy can use democracy to attack it. I think one kind of huge takeaway, I think, from the series is about the stereotypes that we have about neo-Nazis or, or people on the far right, right? That, that they're easy to identify, that we would know one if we bumped into one in, in a bar, that they're skinheads or that they're kind of foaming at the mouth with hate. But when we meet Franco A. later in the series, he kind of bucks all of those stereotypes. I mean, he's certainly foaming at the mouth with hate, but, you know, he speaks fluent English, he's highly educated. And you mentioned in that episode that this kind of rebranding of the far right, that they've taken on these almost kind of like academic terms to describe what is at the heart of it, just old-fashioned kind of Nazi ideology. Do we need to rethink the way we, we talk and, and think about the far right? That's one of the biggest challenges today. And it's one of the challenges that the intelligence services in Germany have identified as well. How do you recognize it? It's a question of identifying, you know, where do you draw the line? Where does kind of freedom of speech and freedom of yeah opinion veer into kind of dangerous hate speech? And into extremism, really, a kind of something that fundamentally undermines the kind of dignity of human beings and targets groups of people in a way that then potentially foments violence and, and terrorism. It's very interesting when my 88-year-old aunt heard the Franco episode, her first comment to me was, it's just like back then when ordinary people were Nazis. The neighbor was a Nazi. The lawyer was a Nazi. The doctor was a Nazi. And I thought, you know, she was a child during the Nazi era. And, you know, this observation to me was a really interesting one. Yeah, it just kind of summed it up. For Franco, it was a conscious decision at some point. He he talks about a far-right rally he attended when he was 18 years old. It was with this far-right party at the time. It's called the People's Union. It's now defunct. It, it later merged with the National Party of Germany, the NPD, which is kind of a neo-Nazi outfit, pretty small. It, at one point, it sort of almost was elected into the German parliament. I think it was in the 1960s, but it's been sort of a fringe party. And he has these interesting observations in his teenage diary where he writes about, you know, how he liked the content of the, at the rally, the sort of speaker's. You know, he thought that the, the skinhead bouncers were nice enough. And, you know, he was sort of okay about all that. But he commented on how it was just a bad presentation and how, in some ways, it wasn't surprising these guys weren't making headway in elections. Because, you know, he talked about the dumb populist slogans on their campaign posters and about those skinhead bouncers, you know, who just sort of looked the part in many ways. And it was that moment when I think this teenage Franco decided this is not going to be who, who I am. And the far right has studied the left. It's interesting. I mean, they take a lot of their cues from the sort of 1960s, 1970s countercultural left, which had their 
leftist publishing houses uh, staged their sit-ins, occupied words and terms and claimed them for themselves. And sort of, you know, the sort of civil disobedience of the left is something that the right is now copying, and quite openly so. You've got these extremist movements like Generation Identity, which has been closely tied to the AFD party in the German parliament, the far right, which is under observation by the intelligence service. You know, they're they're definitely considered extremists, far right extremists. But they call themselves the sort of Greenpeace for Germany. And that's how they market themselves. So it's it's very interesting. Their their lifestyles and even some of their ideas can feel very familiar. This particular movement, I visited one of their kind of living projects in, in the eastern city of Halle, and they have like an organic garden in the back and they do exchange programs with other European countries. You know, they they wear corduroy pants and have hipster beards and some of them are vegan and they're Nazis. It's very interesting. So yeah, I think we definitely need to reset how we think about what these people look and sound like because some of their baseline grievances are now very widespread. Their baseline concerns about immigration you can hear them on every market square in Germany now, and I suspect in the United States too. Given the Franco art doesn't fit the stereotype, the kind of cartoonish neo-Nazi stereotype, did that give you pause before broadcasting the interview with him? For sure. And it was a long and difficult discussion, and a lot of people got involved in the discussion, and we wrestled with this. In the end, you know, our decision was that it was important to actually show people, let them hear it and show them what the far right can look like today, because it's not so rare anymore that it takes this shape and form. I mean, in my experience as a reporter who's been focused on this issue. So that was what made us decide in the end to to go ahead with it. I think it's important to be aware of it. I think it's educational, actually, to know what we're dealing with. And in some ways, it makes it scarier because it's sometimes much easier, you know, to paint a political enemy or somebody you consider dangerous and a threat for democracy as kind of a monster almost. But when they're not monsters and when they sound quite polite and they speak beautiful English and they just happen to have ideas that fundamentally go against our liberal democratic constitutions, then you need to be on your guard. And so, yes, it was a big, big issue for us how to how to deal with Franco A as a journalistic subject in audio. You kind of flick at this in the series, but how did the reunification of Germany play into the contemporary dynamics of the far right? It was a moment, and again, this is something that I think we're only now working through in in Germany in some ways. I mean, it was a moment of obviously euphoria. It was a moment that a lot of people had waited for. It was a moment of liberation for Easterners and so on. But it was also the moment where a kind of slightly aging and weakening Western neo-Nazi scene saw a great opportunity in the East, partly because the East had not experienced democracy for a very long time. It had a communist regime that had followed the Nazi regime and under communism, which defined itself as an anti-fascist state, nevertheless, sort of nationalism and, you know, some far-right ideas clearly survived and lay dormant Because once reunification happened, they came out with a vengeance. It was really striking how within weeks and months of this moment of the wall falling, a kind of this wave of racist attacks happened in eastern Germany, also in the West, but 
It was a moment where the neo-Nazis on both sides of the wall really rejoiced. They reunified too. And that movement sort of, sort of coalesced. And interestingly enough, I mean, a lot of far-right intellectuals and sort of politicians and, you know, not just the kind of ground troops, if you, if you like, who, who did go over and do, quote-unquote, development work, literally. They kind of drove their vans into the east and they helped their far-right comrades over there. And many of them set up shop in the east. A lot of the prominent uh, far-right leaders of today who live in the East are actually Westerners. So you've got this guy, Björn Höcke, who makes an appearance in episode five. He's the most notorious leader of the AFD party in Germany, a person who's a class, like who's been classified as a far-right extremist by the intelligence services, who wields great influence. He's from Hessen in, in West Germany, a former history teacher who moved to the East to sort of regroup You've got Götz Kubitschek, who was a sort of leading intellectual of the far right. Same thing, you know, he's from West Germany and he moved there and lives in a manor house there now. So you've got sort of this idea of the East, which is much more homogeneous and white, uh, more rural, where neo-Nazis and far right groups feel like they can regroup and kind of logistically and mentally coalesce. And in some ways, that is a situation today where the far right by no means is limited to the East. But it certainly has its power base there. And you see that in the numbers the AFD gets in elections, which is more than twice as high as, as in the West. And in terms of the sort of test for our democratic institutions that this represents, I think Germany has a lot of lessons to teach, too, because Germany's post-war democracy actually designed its institutions deliberately to deal with threats from the inside because of that perhaps most important lesson from the Nazi era that the Nazis were elected before they abolished democracy. So in that sense, this test of the institutions is one that I think is worth watching in Germany because there are lessons for other democracies. It'll be interesting to see what the US takes away from that. Absolutely. Well, this was fantastic. Thank you, Amy. That was really fun and good luck with everything. And that was Katrin Benhold. My thanks to Katrin and the audio team at the New York Times for their generosity. That's all for Farm Policy Playlist. If you liked what you heard, please subscribe. And if you want to suggest a great podcast, please email us at podcasts at farmpolicy.com. The show is hosted by me, Amy McKinnon, and is produced by Zimone Perez, Rob Sachs, and Rosie Julin. Our executive producer of podcasts is Dan Efron. And now, as promised, the last episode of our four-part series on women's important role in the post-COVID-19 recovery, sponsored by the African Development Bank. Hear how women are essential to a post-COVID recovery on the African continent. Hi, I'm Carol Pino, and I'm here with Abdou Mokhtar, Director of the Industrial and Trade Department at the African Development Bank. And we're here to talk about the important role of African women in post-COVID recovery. This is the last installment of our four-part sponsored series from the African Development Bank. We've looked at women in the informal sector, and today we're going to focus on how to move more women into the formal sector. Because unfortunately, when it comes to how many women make up the formal sector, well... The truth is not too many. And this means that women miss out on the benefits of having a business that is registered with easy access to supply chains and good contractors and suppliers. And then, of course, there's financing. 
I think one of the most important things also is access to finance. Unless you're formal, you'll not be able to get money from banks to scale up or to establish your own business. Thankfully, the new African Continental Free Trade Agreement, the CFTA, opens up opportunities for women-owned businesses and significantly eases trade. For women selling their goods across borders between neighboring countries, they often face harassment, exploitation, and bribes. It can be quite an ordeal to get from, say, Benin to Nigeria. Before she exits Benin Republic, you know, she will be thoroughly questioned by Benin custom authorities and what are you carrying, why are you carrying these, asking her to pay money to be even allowed to leave the country and to cross the border. Uh, she will suffer a lot, you know, spend a lot of hours uh, at that border post, and then she does that. And then she's happy, and then she moves a few meters away, and then she meets with the Nigerian custom authorities, and they repeat the same uh, things. The CFTA is making trade across borders much easier. And with so many women involved in cross-border trading, it's sure to have an impact on women. But some critics say the agreement doesn't do enough on gender. Abdu disagrees, noting some clauses specifically targeting women. And he says the agreement creates a clear path for moving businesses from the informal to the formal sector. The CFTA is really supposed to lift everyone. It's for the whole continent. You know, everybody is going to benefit. But more importantly, it specifically addresses vulnerable groups. Making sure women are at the forefront of all post-COVID recovery efforts is key. It's very important for recovery because the main sectors that really should work for a good recovery to take place, you know, agriculture, agribusiness, services industries, manufacturing industries. These are also the areas where women operate the most. The role that they need to play uh, for this post-COVID recovery is really important. Thanks for listening to this special four-part mini-series on women and Africa's COVID recovery. To see a video of my conversation with Abdu Mokhtar and others, head to foreignpolicy.com. And for more on the African Development Bank, check out afdb.org. ACAST powers the world's best podcasts. Here's a show that we recommend. It is a truth universally acknowledged that it is always the right time to read, talk, and think about Pride and Prejudice. But why is it this book that we universally acknowledge? Why has Pride and Prejudice lasted for over two centuries as the most famous romance novel of all time? This season of Hot and Bothered, award-winning journalist Lauren Sandler and me, Vanessa Zoltan, are looking closely at Pride and Prejudice, interviewing experts and trying to figure out what this book has taught generations of readers about love. Listen to Hot and Bothered wherever you get your podcasts. Acast helps creators launch, grow, and monetize their podcasts everywhere. Acast.com. Acast.com.